0: work, I um, had a talk with a gentleman, his name's Roberto, and he's got always a smile, and I always thought, man, that guy looks like he's a Christian. <laughs> well, he, I was right. <laughs> uh, he asked me, so what are you doing Saturday? And I'm going, what, what am I doing Saturday? I'm not working Saturday. And he goes, no, what are you doing Saturday? I'm going, well, I'm going to finish, I'm gonna finish uh, preparing for uh, a sermon I'm going to preach on Sunday. And he goes... So we started talking a little bit, and um, I shared with him a little bit of um, the challenges and struggles that we've had as parents raising our kids to be godly, to choose Christ above the world. And um, as I shared some of those things with him, he opened up and he said, would you pray for my son? He's 18, and... Um, He's really having a hard time. Grew up in church, but doesn't want anything to do with God right now. So I don't know what his son's name is, but I know what his name is. His name's Roberto. So why don't we um, agree in prayer? Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, our high priest, whoever lives to make intercession on our behalf. And we thank you and we praise you that we have your ear for when we call out to you, As your children, when we pray according to your will, we know that you hear us. And when we know you hear us, we know that we have the petitions that we've asked of you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would reach this young man, that you would so grip his soul that he would see that Jesus and Jesus alone is what life's all about and what makes life worth living. I pray for his parents that you would, in the midst of their trial, be their comfort, that they would sense your presence, that they would know that they are not abandoned, that they know that they are loved regardless of the hardships they're undergoing. And I pray, Lord God, that you would do this all for the name's sake, for your name's sake, and for the joy of that family and that young man in you. Amen. Well, it's good to be back so soon. We've been going through Daniel, and uh, in the book of Daniel, one of the things that I've been seeing that is just constant, and that is the rulership and kingship, of God as creator, sustainer, and ruler over all of creation. And uh, I've titled this sermon from Daniel 6, I've titled it, God's Sovereignty Over Man's Law. Subtitle is, The Law Above the Law. Now the law above the law is God's eternal word over man's fleeting regulations. As in the previous five chapters, we see God's sovereignty on display here subtly. Civil disobedience comes into the fray and the courage needed for said actions can't be overstated nor casually obtained. No. It requires the strength that God gives us to pursue Him in all of life. And this is evident in Daniel's life from his youth up into his latter years, that regardless of who is the king, Daniel understands that ultimately God is king and ruler over all, not mere man. So he refuses to bow to idolatrous images or submit himself to corrupt laws. Let's pray. The unfolding of your word brings light and gives understanding to the simple. In your light, we see light, Lord. So help us this morning. Help us this morning hear. Help us this morning see. And help us this morning resolve. To make you and you alone the reason why we live, move, and have our being. And I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. You know, in our day, there's a popular refrain that says, You can't legislate morality. We've heard that, right? I've heard it so much, I'm, you know, I'm about to throw up. So, to say you can't legislate morality, what are people actually saying? It sounds like, to me, kind of like this. If you jump in the ocean, son, you better not get wet. In other words, you can't get into the water without getting wet. Water and wetness come together. Well, in the same way, in a similar fashion, you cannot legislate a law without it having a moral prescription attached to To it. That is the nature of law. By nature, laws prescribe what one ought or ought not do. Like water and wetness, moral standards can't be separated from their prescriptive design, nor can morality from any legislation. Laws are immaterial and thus come from a mind. We know this from two, in two ways. Number one, we know it from Scripture, but we also know this from nature. In Scripture, in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, God gives a law to Adam and Eve. He would already blessed them with everything, given them everything they need. And He said, You can eat from every tree except one. If you eat from that tree, you're going to die. So there is the, the moral prescription to obey. And when that does not occur, there's a consequence. In the garden, it brought death. Now, you and I love, I don't know how, how many of you grown up in California. Have any of you heard of what's called a California stop? California stop... Um, by nature, is a rolling stop, which means you don't stop when you get to the stop sign. That is a law prescribing you and I to do something. Now, if the police catch you doing it, they can give you a ticket. And often they know you've done it so often that when they catch you, they will most assuredly give you one. So when you're dealing with laws, these are things that... Are commands and these commands are not physical they're immaterial but they come from persons or a body of individuals whether or not they're absent it doesn't matter whether they're physically there or not a mind is behind law a mind is behind a command you know what that means that means that law by its nature Argues against naturalism, which essentially says that matter is all there is. There is no such thing as an immaterial reality, such as spirit or God. That's a good argument against it, in my view. Now, laws are prescriptive. The fact that laws prescribe can't be denied. But whether or not these laws are moral or immoral depends on one thing. Our ultimate reference point. If man is the measure of all things, if there is no God, then it seems reasonable to conclude that if you want to get along, you just go along with the program and you do what your culture says is good or is bad, if you want to get along. But if God is the measure of all things, then it seems reasonable to obey His commands even if they contradict man's laws. Does that make sense? Simple, right? Yeah, but life's not so simple, is it? (laughs) No. Life is never so simple. Often when our master is the creator of heaven and earth, often the creature can be a formidable foe. Formidable. The issue of law and its categories is multifaceted, And it is fascinating to study. The history of God's people from Adam on to now is fraught with turmoil when allegiance to God is challenged by unbelieving nations or their rulers, where public shame, imprisonment, and even death result. Now, in Daniel chapter 6, the world of power politics is still at play, but now for Daniel, it's under a third administration that of the Medes and Persians where Darius is king. Recall last time I was here, chapter 5, that God displayed his sovereignty over King Belshazzar's life. That that very day, his life was required of him. God took it. Well now in chapter 6, God displays his sovereignty over the law of the Medes and the Persians through rescuing Daniel from the lion's den and destroying his opponents. So this chapter reveals 5, Big ideas. Number one, the new king exercises his power. A new regime exercises a new law. An old saint exercises an old resolve. The eternal king exercises his might. And the temporal king acknowledges the eternal king. First one. The temporal king exercises his power. Now Daniel is serving a new regime. Verses one through five. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom, and over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them, and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps, because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption, inasmuch as he was faithful, and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God." Now here, the setting is much like chapter 3. We, we have an account of uh, court conflict. There's intrigue. Uh, a distinctive feature here is that as an exile, Daniel maintains his public no to public practices which contradict his commitment to God and maintains his yes to private practices that are critical to his commitment to God. Remember, when they were youths, they would not eat the king's food Sacrifice to idols, etc. They would not do it. Recall that in chapter, I believe it's one or two. So we have here a couple of terms. One of them is sat traps, the other one's commissioners. Satraps were probably in charge of smaller subdivisions of the regions that were being governed in Babylon. They were the king's viceroys in charge of the provinces responsible for security, collecting tribute and they were known as protectors of the realm. They were government officials. Now, commissioners were higher up. They were like, like presidents, in a sense, which were already in place during the Chaldean rule under Belshazzar and continued to be so under Darius. Now, Daniel's position of commissioner is something that we're already somewhat accustomed to hearing. What is it? He excelled he excelled in his position as always now he's probably around 82 83 years old now what does he do he excels in his capacities of government that he occupied and the text begins to says this of him that he was distinguishing himself because he possessed an extraordinary spirit that term that he distinguished himself, it means that he became preeminent. I really believe this has to do with his walk of holiness with the Lord. I really do. I don't think it's just natural talent. I think his dedication to the Lord affected both his ability to think clearly, to see and have the wisdom of the Lord into things that nobody else in the kingdom had. And when it talks about that he had an extraordinary spirit, it has to do with he superseded all others. He wasn't only preeminent, he was exceptional with his qualities. He was the cream of the crop. He was the best of the best. He was Daniel, God's man. In government power. I don't know why Christians have this idea that Christians ought not to be part of civic, du- you know, civic duties and be part of of government. This this whole this whole uh, uh, book argues against it. Uh, not only that, because of this exceptional man, the king noticed, and the king wants to make sure that he sets Daniel above and beyond. All others under him. He wants to put Daniel in charge of everything, the entire kingdom, the text says. But you ever feel at work like you're excelling and you're doing well, and then jealousy arises with your coworkers. Anybody ever experienced that? You ever experienced that in the church? I have. It stinks. Ought not be, but Where people are, there they are. And we sometimes don't shine for Christ. Daniel had opposition. uh, Just as uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did in chapter 3. Where they are uh, commanded to fall down and uh, worship the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And they say, ain't going to do it. Well, Daniel, in, in, in the same sense, is saying the same thing to this law that is going to be passed that is anti-Semitic. And that is the law of the Medes and the Persians. Now remember, there's the stigma that still remained of being a people who were conquered by the Babylonians. And when you were a conquered people, that meant that your God was not strong enough to fight for you or so the Babylonians thought, and so now the Medes and the Persians. There was a stigma to being a Jew back then. They were viewed as people whose God could not rescue them from Babylon's deities, and like heck are they going to have this Jew rule over them. So what happens? Jealousy is being triggered in the halls of power where success often breeds contempt not praise. The exaltation of a conquered Jew inferior to the Medes and the Persians must not happen, is the attitude. But, the only way to get Daniel was to strike at what was most important to him, and that was his God. And they knew it. So, we've got a new king exercising power, placing people into... Uh, Official places in government. Now we have a new regime which exercises a new law. And this law demands idolatry. Verses 6 through 9. Check this out. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for thirty days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. This is repeated two more times. This is the key to this chapter, that line. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. Now, there's several things going on here. Number one is the partial truth is told, not the whole truth, because um, concerning the injunction, all but Daniel were consulted regarding the passing of the law which at the core is idolatrous they knew there's no way at all that Daniel whose name do you remember what Daniel's name means? God is my judge God is my judge Daniel would never concede to such a statute being a monotheistic Jew never, ever so the rulers came up together in agreement and did so with haste wanting the king to draw up the decree and this should have aroused Darius's suspicions but i don't know why it didn't for some reason he approved the law affixing his seal to it okay now the law of the Medes and the Persians which may not be revoked when the when the text says that is a powerful concept in this chapter. In all of Daniel, as previously noted in chapters 1 through 5, and the, and the chapters that follow, we have this same thread of, of a message that's being put forth, and that is that God alone is sovereign, and His rule is eternal but Darius's like Belshazzar's and Nebuchadnezzar's are temporary and fleeting. This is good news for an Israelite that's in captivity. That's an exile. It's going to eventually end. That's one of the things that is being said here. Your suffering and shame... Believer, if you're undergoing suffering or shame, it's going to end. It is not eternal. It feels like it, though, doesn't it sometimes? It feels like, my gosh, I just can't bear the weight of this situation anymore. That is part of the struggle of being a time-bound creature and that is why unless we peer into god's word we will always and only see things through a time-bound creatures perspective god here i believe is encouraging us to remember that this present evil age that even our own lives they are fleeting And there should be an urgency within each and every one of us who call ourselves believers to do what Paul says, to check and see if we're in the faith, to look at our lives if they're consistent with what we say we believe in. This law its mentioned three times as as I've already said. and and points to its significance. And what the significance is this, to prevent Daniel from worshiping God according to the law of Moses. What we have here is a clash of orthodoxies. Submit to the state or submit to Almighty God. And the Christian life, in one degree or another, is a daily battle of that, isn't it? Are you going to submit to the ways of this world that are passing away? Or are you going to submit to God? Nothing has changed, nor will it, until the new heavens and the new earth, until death is finally vanquished. That tension believers will always be dealing with. So the challenge to us is real today think about it and listen to what uh, John Lennox says a scholar and mathematician there's great pressure in the contemporary Western world for the privatization of the expression of religious belief if not for its outright abolition it is a widespread conviction that naturalism is the default belief system. And ironically, Christian theism has no place in the very academies that it founded in the first place. Daniel was prepared to swim against the flow. Are we? Now these places that uh, John Lennox is talking about, it's talking about Cambridge and Oxford. And here in the United States, you can think of the, you know, the Ivy League, you know, uh, 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 um, Harvard and Yale, uh, uh, Princeton, Princeton. These, the, these, they were founded to raise up godly ministers. <laughs> oh, how the mighty have fallen. The early church experienced similar challenges to Daniel's under the Roman Empire. Think about it. Under Rome, which was a pluralistic milieu, Rome didn't mind you worshipping any god you wanted to, so long as you obeyed Caesar and acknowledged Caesar as Lord. Well, we know from history and the Bible that there's no way Christians were going to do that. What happened to many of them was they were also fed to the lions in the Colosseum. Now, an account of that is, comes from the epistle to the Romans from Ignatius. In a, a brief summary of this letter to the Romans, Ignatius addresses the issue of his death, which is something most of us today don't even want to talk about. As believers, we, we fear death. And you've got to understand, at the core of Christianity is the resurrection of Christ from the dead. So that we no longer have to fear it. Because as he rose, we too will rise in a new body in the new heaven and the new earth. To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Nevertheless, death is spooky. It just is. But listen to what Ignatius, as a prisoner, first he encourages the Romans to pray, not for his deliverance, but for his death. He desires a martyr's death to prove the genuineness of his faith, and this through the wild beasts to us in this day and age that sounds a bit fanatical sounds a bit what's your trip dude what are you trying to prove and if the wild beast didn't want him he would entice them to rip him to shreds why his goal was to attain to Christ Only by death could Ignatius attain to the true life. He desired neither the pleasures of this world nor its kingdoms, but rather the pleasures of God and His kingdom. And it was only through death that he could attain this true life. So he exhorts the Romans to demonstrate their fidelity to Christ by imitating Him. He affirmed that what he had written to the Romans was in accordance with God's will. Thus, to prevent Ignatius from martyrdom was equivalent to the Romans hating him. So what's to be done when the state crosses the line with our worship? Well, we've seen the king exercise his power and his cabinet exercising a new law. and Now we come to where an old saint exercises an old resolve. You know what it is? Holiness to the Lord. Verses 10 through 15. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any God or man besides you, O king, for thirty days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, The statement is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king. Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you sign, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Then, as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that, this, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. Now what we see here is Daniel's resolve to be in the world but not of the world. He demonstrates this through an act of worship, which is prayer. Daniel's faced the dilemma of obeying either the law of the Medes and the Persians or of being fed to the lions. That's his dilemma. You and I probably haven't gone through such horrifying uh, circumstances. Has anybody been threatened with their life to this in this in this sense. Okay. See, what we have here is courage under fire. And much like in chapter 3 where Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are commanded to bow before the king, Daniel is commanded to obey this godless law and he says I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Now again, I want to encourage you, please don't listen to this account in Scripture and be detached emotionally from it. I want you to feel. You know what it's like to experience fear. Maybe you've lost your kid at the beach and you don't know where they are and you're freaked out. I think that's happened to a lot of parents. I think it's happened... It happened to us, to us uh, years ago with Sergio at Disneyland. I freaked out, man. I got cold. I got clammy. I was freaking out. How about, how about this one? Okay, ready? The, the duck dip, right? We talked about the duck dip at a home group. Right? The duck dip. Have you ever, had the, have you ever experienced the duck dip when you're driving on the freeway? And you wake up and you're panicked you 're fearful for your life you 're fearful that oh my gosh, I could have gotten in an accident do, do, do you understand that 's a little a little taste of, of the of fear that 's real why because we know we 're mortal. death is still very real daniel i, I don 't doubt that he had to experience some kind of fear i don 't want us to have an unrealistic view of the heroes in the scriptures they were human beings with fears like us and they're demonstrating through God's grace that you can trust God even in those horrific circumstances so what are Daniel's options well he could have prayed in private and not risked his life by disobeying uh, he could have waited until the injunction had run its course and then continued living out his piety before the heathen. Could have done that. But he didn't do that. You know what he did? He defied the state. It's exactly what he did. He defied the satanic forces behind that law. Behind that injunction. It's exactly what he did. And he did it for everyone to see. He didn't hide it. He in a very real way was being salt and light according to Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 through 16 or so. He was experiencing the reward of a prophet being persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Do you cower at such circumstances at school or at work or at the ball field with other parents? Do you hide your light? Do you live in fear? No. He'd rather obey God and suffer temporary consequences, which is death by being eaten by lions, than disobey God and forfeit his soul. Now, some of you might say, it sounds like there's no grace here. Say what? You mean he has to obey? Well, Luke fourteen twenty six twenty seven. 27 Why don't we listen to, to Jesus? Tell me what you think he means. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I'm not done. Matthew 10, 32-39. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying, I'm going to treat you like you treat me. Uh, That's as plain as it could be. That's as radical as it gets. You going to deny me? I'm going to deny you. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Wait a minute, Jesus, I thought you were a nice guy. Got this image of Jesus, you know, with, Cool sandals and long hair, surfer, casual dude, kicking back, getting barreled. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter in law against her mother in law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. This is real. Following Jesus is going to cost everything. And for some of us, it's going to cost more than others. In God's hidden providential plan for each and every one of our lives, it's going to look different. But there's a cost. And according to Jesus, it's death to yourself and all other meager treasures that you have. If you don't recognize that they pale in comparison to me, you're not worthy of me. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Did you hear that, parents? Did you hear that, spouses? And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Daniel doesn't know Jesus. Jesus was not incarnated just yet. But I believe Daniel was born again and I believe that Daniel, when he got to heaven and found out, oh my gosh, you were the ancient of days. You're the I am. Why do I say that? How can I say that? Jesus said, the, the, the Old Testament, everything written in the Law of the Prophets and the Writings was written about Him. These things were pointing to Him. In Isaiah it says that there is no Savior but God, right? Yeah, somewhere in the 40s or the 50s, somewhere around there, right? The New Testament is clear. Jesus is Kurios. Jesus is Lord. What's the name of Jesus? Which was awesome. The name of Jesus is Yahweh. I am. That's the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is not Jesus. That was powerful. Ten years. Still powerful. So, what's his prayer? What's he doing here? Life was part. Uh, uh, his prayer, life was part of his worship, as it is to be ours, according to the New Testament. The reference to praying three times daily is not a, a practice that's found in the Torah, or one that's binding to demonstrate one's true piety. Okay. Um, It does, however, indicate that part of communion with God requires prayer. And if you think you have to pray three times a day or seven times a day in order to be accepted before God, Paul says, no, if you're going to do that, which you ought not do, uh, you need to pray constantly without ceasing. But thank God we're not accepted for how well or poorly we perform in prayer before God. We're accepted because of what Christ did on Calvary's cross. He's had mercy on us. So when he's praying, he's probably giving thanks. Praying and giving thanks probably has to do with praying for those in exile, as Solomon did in the dedication of the temple. In 1 Kings 8, verses 47 to 51, Daniel is doing that. Let me read a little bit. This is what Solomon says, When they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin, Amen? Amen? "...and you are angry with them and delivered them to an enemy, so that they take them away captive to the land of the enemy." far off or near, if they take thought in the land where they have been taken captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who have taken them captive, saying, We have sinned and have committed iniquity. We have acted wickedly. If they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who have taken them captive and pray to you toward their land which you have given to their fathers, the city which you have chosen, and the house which I have built for your name, then hear their prayer and their supplication in heaven, your dwelling place, and maintain their cause. And forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you. And make them objects of compassion before those who have taken them captive that they may have compassion on them for they are your people and your inheritance which you have brought forth from Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and to the supplication of your people Israel to listen to them whenever they call to you I think he's doing that when he's facing Jerusalem See Daniel lived in Babylon but his heart did not live for Babylon Daniel lived in Babylon but his heart did not live for Babylon. Christian, you're in this world, but do you live for it? Certainly he was faithful in his civic duties and to its rulers, but... Daniel lived for the city of God much like Abraham for he was looking for the city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God are we so short-sighted are we so oh God I want to say something I better not are we so doggone short-sighted that we're just living for the meager crap of this evil age. Here's something interesting. In this text, Darius is bound by his own laws. Unlike Nebuchadnezzar, who had been an absolute monarch, where his word was the law, it wasn't like that with the Medes and the Persians. No. Law trumped the king. Law trumped the ruler. Kind of like it does today here in our system. And I say kind of because, man, there's you know where there's human beings in power, there's corruption. But the goal is, no, law trumps the ruler. And that's what's going on here. The law was absolute. Or so you would think. But it was not. God had other plans. Were the king and his subjects exercise their power and law, God would demonstrate that his law is above their law. How? By exercising his might through serving Daniel. Did you hear that? God is not served with human hands as if He needed anything, right? Acts 17. God doesn't need you to serve Him in a very, very real way. He doesn't have need. He calls us to share in ruling and reigning with Him, He gives gifts to us to be participants but don't ever think that god needs you or me to accomplish his purposes his purposes will be accomplished and sometimes he you know you know the old saying if you want done something right you got to do it yourself well here's one of those cases where god is going to do something that little kids grow up in Sunday school hearing of this amazing story and don't realize the significance of what's taking place. Verses 16 through 24. Then the king gave orders and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God whom you constantly serve will himself deliver you. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles, so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. Then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled from him. Then the king arose at dawn, at the break of day, and went to haste to the lion's den. When he came near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. And also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Then the king gave orders and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel and they cast them, their children, and their wives into the lion's den and they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Several things I want to note. First of all, Darius couldn't sleep. Like Nebuchadnezzar, when Nebuchadnezzar had that dream and when he had that vision where he couldn't sleep, Darius couldn't sleep for fear that Daniel would be killed by the lions. Now, who would he find to replace that had the spirit of Daniel in his kingdom? I mean, this is his ace his ace Daniel had favor with King Nebuchadnezzar and you know what Daniel also had favor with Darius the proverb says that when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him that's kind of a conundrum here because while he's at peace with Darius Darius has no power to overthrow the law of the Mede and the Persians but God does how God rescues Daniel he is served by the Lord through sending an angelic being to shut up the mouths of the lions what happens to his adversaries they are swiftly destroyed note that in scripture often when God rescues his people it means that He destroys their enemies. Anybody remember the Red Sea event? Israel made it through the Red Sea. The Egyptian hordes were following them and they got drowned. They were destroyed, Israel was delivered. But it's their families, their wives, their kids. They they didn't do anything wrong. Have you ever heard of guilt by association? Do you realize that your actions affect more than you? I mean, in Adam all sinned, according to, to Romans. Because of one man's transgression, death entered and reigned. Through the second Adam, Christ, life, righteousness, joy, peace in the Holy Spirit is given. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ did. Understand this, parents, and this is painful for me, because I fail in a lot of ways, and I know it, and I know that I adversely affect my wife, and my children. And anybody who's married that would say contrary is a liar. But it's not all bleak. I'm going to help you smile right now, okay? I know there are other things that I do that bring blessing to them. This points out something very important that the choices that we make are very significant and we don't realize how the far reaching effects they will have according to this text if you are god's enemy you will be devoured you will be devoured if you're his friend you will be protected. Now you're saying, "Yeah, but you know, I mean, look at what happened to Jesus and you know, Apostle Paul in the early church." I know that. This isn't guaranteeing that when we're in a bad spot, we're going to get delivered right there and then. But again, as time-bound creatures, let us not think only temporally. We must think through the lenses of God's eternal word. And Jesus said, hey, don't fear those who uh, can kill the body and after that can't do anything. He said, let me tell you who to fear. Fear the one who after the body is dead has the power to throw you into into, uh, hellfire. I tell you, fear Him. And that is, fear God. He's the Creator. Everything else is derivative. Creature. Needy. Needy. Not self-existent. It's as if the lion from the tribe of Judah rescued his faithful servant and devoured his servant's enemies. You know, people think that... I mean, you know, when laws are enacted, it's very hard to have them repealed. Think of Roe v. Wade, right? Enacted, what, 1973? Uh, I don't know how many children have been brutally murdered... brutally murdered. I mean, I don't think you can be any more vicious when you're dealing with human beings. Unless, of course, they're just a piece of meat and they have no value. But I don't see how you can see the taking of the weakest most defenseless creature and say that is a woman's right. That's a wicked, wicked, wicked law. And we are storing up wrath. Come to the climax of the account. And the message is the same one that's being told throughout the book. Which is God and God alone is sovereign, not the creature. He's the measure of all things, not man, not woman. The temporal king acknowledges the eternal king that God and God alone is to be worshipped. Verse 25, Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who were living in all the land. May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. The following is worthy of note. Nebuchadnezzar did as, no, not Darius, Darius did as Nebuchadnezzar did. He acknowledged that Daniel's God is the one, true, and only God. Now, I have reason to believe that Nebuchadnezzar was converted. I'm not sure that Darius was from this account. Uh, That's the first thing I want to say. But one day, many will come to realize what Darius is confessing. But they're going to realize it as God's enemies, not as God's friends. Philippians says what? The day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is kurios, Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess. You're either going to do it His way or you're going to do it His way. Read the book of Revelation. The gospel accounts of Christ is very different from the book of Revelation which shows a Jesus who comes back to make war with the nations and He slays them with the sword of the Word that comes out of His mouth. People hate Him, and instead of bowing to Him, they say, we, they cry out for the mountains to fall on them. Have you ever been to Yosemite? you ever been around a huge granite rock? Imagine to, to want that granite huge rock to fall on you and squish you to death. Well, for those that hate God, that's better than bowing to him. There's several emphases I want to consider. First of all, he says that God is the living God enduring forever. And as such, gives eternal life to his subjects. God calls himself the I am of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of the living, not of the dead. Remember Jesus' uh, confrontation with the Sadducees who deny the resurrection where he had to explain to them, you neither know the power of God nor the scriptures. Secondly, God's kingdom and rule or law by indication are indestructible. And here's where we see that God's law is the law above the laws or law of man. Because the former comes from the infinite self-existent one and the latter originates in finite meaty creatures the creator creature distinction is the number one distinction we need to get as people who value this book called the Bible it will help you fit and connect the dots to so many theological puzzles Third, God's dominion is everlasting, unlike the rest of humanity's reigns, which are but a vapor. Do you realize that in a 100 years we will all be forgotten? Do you ever think that way? Do you even care? If you're Christ, you will never be forgotten. and i can't think of anything more dehumanizing than being forgotten which is what happens to the wicked created in god's image created for majesty that is the greatest tragedy for god is a personal being God delights to draw near to the broken and contrite and demonstrate His mighty deliverances in space-time history as proof that He is, which culminates, by the way, in the incarnation of Jesus of Nazareth as the Redeemer and Judge of the living and the dead. There's a time for civil disobedience. It's occasioned by the laws that Man creates which contradict God's laws. In response to stop preaching the resurrected Christ, Peter responded to those ruling, Whatever it is right, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you, rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. In response to the law of the Medes and the Persians to commit idolatrous acts, Daniel chose a den of lion, a den of lion, over being disloyal to the great I Am. And what about you and me, friend? Where are our loyalties? may we be those who receive and treasure this following benediction. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you and you and you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that in Daniel, up to chapter 6 we see all this biography and the message essentially is the same you are God and there is no other you are king and are everlasting and your dominion as well is everlasting to be your friend is a joy to be your enemy is is the horror of all horrors. May we, God, that name Your name, be salt and light where You have us. And may we grow continuously in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Amen.